You're listening to audio from Queen City Church. Thank you for joining us. We hope this message will encourage you and offer practical steps for a relationship with God that keeps getting better and better. So today I'd like to start really by setting up uh, today's message. That's really the standalone by reminding us of, uh, of our five-year birthday where Pastor Brian, it was this service was called Something New. And Pastor Brian, he actually shared this new vision of our church, this, this vision that we have, not just as Queen City Church, but that we also believe that God has for your life. Uh, and this vision is to know God, to find community, become a disciple, and then be the church. And if you missed that week or you want to refresh, you can always check out our podcast. I encourage you to do that because this vision is so important to where we're heading as a church. It's important to where we're going. And, uh, you know, he, he, he explained that week really well that this isn't like this linear progression. We don't spend some time knowing God and we get to this moment to where it's like, all right, we can check that box and now we can go find community. And we find community for what, six months, a year, and we get to check that box and keep moving. No, 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 it, it is not this linear progression, but really it is this way of life. It is this way of life where the longer we know Jesus, the better we follow him, the deeper and deeper and deeper we go into that vision. That we could know God deeply at 15. And then even more at 25 and 35. And by the time we get to 95 one day, we can look back. And what we can see is there wasn't this one moment in our life where we knew God, but rather our life was marked by moments where we knew him over and over and over again. But I believe there is something that we each have that greatly impacts this vision in each of our lives. Because the truth is, is that how I experience God, the experience of knowing him, it may look different than, than say, my wife. The truth of who he is and his character is unchanging, but how I experience the vision of knowing him may look a little different from how she does. Or the community that I have in my life and that I experience in my life may look a little different than yours. We may experience that a little differently. The truth of why it's important remains the same, but the journey of that experience may look a little different. The same with becoming a disciple of Jesus and being his church. And what I'm referring to is identity, our identity. Because how you see yourself and what you believe about yourself impacts this, the experience of this vision that God has for your life. So if you're taking notes today, I've titled today's message, Five Lies, Three Truths, One You. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for today. Thank you for the gift of Sunday. God, I pray that you right now would just give my words weight. And God, that it would be your message that goes forth. Whatever it is that you want to speak to us today, whatever it is that you want us to hear and receive from you, I pray that that happens. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as I was studying for uh, this message and, and prepping, I came across this quote from Henry Nouwen, who is this, this professor, this writer, really this theologian uh, about lies of identity. And, and this is what the quote is, five lies of identity. The first is that I am what I have. The second is I am what I do. Number three, I am what other people say or think of me, for I am nothing more than my worst moment. And lastly, I am nothing less than my best moment. So I'd love to start today 
by checking out these five lies, looking at these. So number one, I am what I have. You know, in our Western culture, really think about the society we live in. I think we see this concept, this way of life, of living, like quite a bit, where what we have, what we own, or even what we don't have or don't own can tend to define our status in life. From the car we drive to the house we live in, side of town we're from, person we're married, we married, the relationships we have, and on and on and on. We can see that this tends to define us, but I want us to, to think back to this Living Large series that we're currently in, which by the way, we'll finish next week. Uh, but this Living Large series, we've been really taking time trying to learn the opposite of this lie, right? Where, where God has actually called us to live lives of generosity, to, to live generously, where, where it's really about the heart, not about the possessions. We've been learning that to live a life where to live like this life where what we own doesn't have us, but rather like we have it, right? It doesn't, doesn't run our lives. And so this lie right here is sneaky, is tricky because I feel like we see it so much in culture that we can actually pick it up maybe unintentionally without meaning to. And the reason it's, it's, it's really detrimental is because everything that you and I have can be gone in a moment. And when our identity is tied to that, there it goes also. The second, I am what I do. I see this very much like the first slide, where instead of finding your identity in what you possess, you really find it in what you accomplish. And on the surface, this can actually sound like a good thing, especially if you take pride in what you do, if you work hard. You know, maybe you think like, hey, I'm a pastor, or I'm a teacher, I'm a doctor. I'm an accountant, I'm a stay-at-home parent, I'm a football player, so on and so on and so on. But let me ask you, what happens if, you're, if you lose your job, if your company has unexpected layoffs? What happens when you retire? What happens when your kid moves out? And so forth. There's nothing wrong with being proud of what you get to do. In fact, I think there's principles in the Bible where we see like principles about being diligent and working hard with what God's given us. But what I don't think we see is where he says that that should define us. Because we have to be careful. Because just like what we have, when what we do defines us, it could be gone in a moment. And then we could find ourselves in this crisis of identity. Number three, I am what other people think or say of me. This is a good one. I'd like to ask us a question this morning, and I would love your participation just by a show of hands. And I think if we're all honest, this might be really liberating, maybe really freeing. How many of you have ever had the thought, I wonder what he or she or they think about me? Yeah, that's what I figured, all of us, right? Let me be honest, let me be honest. Me too. Honestly, like I, I love and enjoy getting to do this right here. It's an honor every time I get to do it. But if I told you that I never had that thought, that I wonder what you're gonna think of me, I'd be lying. It's true, I do. I think it's natural for us to, to, to have those thoughts. I think that's human. But let me just, let me be honest. What's interesting is people don't actually think about us or say things about us 
as much as we think they do. <laughs> we import it, but not that important. <laughs> There's actually scientific research that shows this. In 1997, Dunbar Marriott studied the topic and content of human conversations, and they found that 78% of conversations involve talking about ourselves and our perceptions of the world. In 2013, a study from Harvard showed that most people do something called anchoring, which is a cognitive bias where people invoke their own experiences as a guide for inferring or interpreting the experiences of another person. For example, let's say public speaking made me uncomfortable. And you and I were having a conversation and you told me how you recently gave a presentation to a room of 500 doctors. I might assume that you are describing a negative experience, even if you personally enjoy public communication. That's anchoring. And then another study, lastly, in 2018, Meyer and Lieberman proposed a theory about why people are always thinking about this. So they're like, right, we know this is true. Here's why we think it is. There's a certain area of the brain that is sort of the default network area. And it gets activated when the brain is at rest and not engaged in external demands. And their imaging work confirmed that it is also the same area of the brain that lights up when we think of ourselves. In other words, our brain's default is to think about us. So we see that people aren't really thinking about us or saying things about us. But how many of you know it's easy to think they are? So when we believe this lie, that we are what others think about us or say about us, what's actually happening is we are disguising our own voice as someone else's in our head. So when we feel judged, it's because we're judging ourselves. If we're unaware of this, what can develop is this victim mindset in our mind. I was thinking about this illustration of this. I was thinking about Imagine being locked in a prison cell, except the door to the cell stands wide open and you're just choosing to stay in there. That's what happens when we believe this lie and the hard reality we must choose to face in order to leave this cell is that the things we think others are thinking about us are really what we think about ourselves. So the solution here it's not trying to change what other people think or say about us, but rather to change and think what we say and believe about ourselves. Fourth lie. I am nothing more than my worst moment. Failure is not a person. It is an event. Can I say that for you again? Failure is not a person. It's an event. And here's some good news. Everyone has them. Everyone's experienced failure. I want you to take a second and I want you to think about whatever you would say is your biggest failure or your worst moment in life, whether that's because of something you chose or something that was done to you. I want you to, to take a second and to think about that. And what emotions come attached with that thought? Regret, shame, condemnation, fear, sadness, I believe there's some of us here today who have believed a lie that that, whatever you were just thinking of, that that defines you. And let me be honest with you. 
That is a straight up lie. Let me remind you about a guy in the Bible named Peter. I think you probably know him. He's a disciple of Jesus. We actually get his worst moment, his biggest failure recorded for us, and we get to see it. So let me, uh, you know, he was, he was this disciple who walked with Jesus and ended up denying Jesus and abandoning Jesus when Jesus actually needed him the most. And he didn't just deny him once or twice. No, Peter went for the trifecta. And I emphasize that for those of us who've made the same mistake more than once. Let's look what happened with Peter's story uh, because this is what happens after Peter denies Jesus. And I think if you didn't know who Jesus was or you would never, you've never heard this story before, you probably wouldn't expect what happens next. But in John 21, we see that they were having breakfast. And it says, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he's pointing to fish. Peter had been fishing. He was a fisherman. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus replies, then feed my lambs. Verse 16, Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter, again, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus says. And again, a third time, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time, and he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. And if we're not careful, I think we can read this passage with a condescending tone where it's like, okay, Jesus, yeah, go ahead. Keep asking Peter if he loves you after he's royally messed up. I think we can read it like that because that's probably what would be natural for many of us. But I don't think that's what this whole exchange was about. You see, Jesus knew Peter's heart. He knew he loved him. He knew Peter loved him the moment he denied him. This moment wasn't for Jesus. It was for Peter. I fully believe Jesus was reminding Peter of who he was. He was reminding him of his identity that Jesus had actually already spoken over him in Matthew chapter 16, where it says, now I say to you, I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail upon it. They will not conquer it. And so this exchange where Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him, I fully believe it is as if Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, do you love me? You're still who I've called you to be. Hey, Peter, do you love me? You're still who I've called you to be. God does not define you or I by our worst moments. Lie number five is I am nothing less than my best moment. And this is really the opposite of the last one. Maybe you define uh, this. Maybe you think about like maybe the biggest sale you've ever made or, you know, maybe the, the glory days of hitting the game-winning shot or throwing that touchdown pass in the, in the back corner of the end zone or whatever it is. Or, or maybe for you, it's landing the promotion that you didn't think was possible or marrying the man or woman of your dreams. Come on. Yeah, girl, I love you. This lie of identity, it really offers us the false assumption that we can eventually earn our identity. And the reason this is so destructive, I see is because it removes the need for grace. If I can be honest, let me tell you where I've actually seen and experienced this the most. It's actually been the church among believers. 
I think that's because we lose grasp of what grace actually is, or we forget the definition of it. You know, growing up for many years, I've heard the definition of grace coined as God's undeserved, or maybe you've heard this word, unmerited favor. Like, especially towards those who are trying to trust and believe in him for like sinners. And that's absolutely true. We see it in verses like this in Romans 3, 24. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in a sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Romans 5, 15. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And then lastly, Romans 11, five and six. It is the same today. For a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. But this is not all grace is. Grace is also the power of God at work in our lives to remake us to renew us, or to use this churchy word, to sanctify us into becoming more like his son, Jesus. And we see this, 2 Corinthians 9. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. 2 Corinthians 12. Each time he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power works best in weakness. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me, this grace, and not without results for I've worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So what we see is that grace is both God's undeserved favor and his power at work in our lives to make us more like Jesus. So we see that grace is for both the believers and the unbelievers. And that we never get to this place in our life where we don't need it. We don't ever graduate from it. We can never have enough grace. I love this quote by Dallas Willard that said, the true saint burns grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff. Become the kind of person who routinely does what Jesus did and said. You will consume so much more grace by leading a holy life than you will by sinning because every holy act you do will have to be upheld by the grace of God. If you want to be a person of grace, then live a holy life of discipleship because the only way you can do that is on a steady diet of grace. Works of the kingdom live from grace. So these are the five lies of identity. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what other people say or think about me. I am nothing more than my worst moment. I am nothing less than my best moment. Those are the five lies about identity. So let's look at three truths about our identity. I'd love to go to Mark chapter one, verse nine, where it says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This is the story of Jesus's baptism, which you can also find in the gospels of Matthew and Luke as well. 
And a little context of where Jesus is at actually in this story is that he's about 30 years old at the time and he has yet to begin any of his public ministry. The miracles, the healing of disciples, we haven't seen any of that yet. And this is actually one of the first things we see him do, become baptized. And this is where God declared these three truths over his life. And just as God spoke these three, these three truths over Jesus, we can also receive them through Jesus because of what he did for us on the cross. And the first is this, we have the right to be children of God. That is such good news. John chapter one, but to all who believed in him, Jesus, and accepted him, Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Galatians 3.26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. First John 3, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. See what great love the Father has lavished on you, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. This is the most important label that you or I could, have or could ever have in our life. This is the most important label that we could ever have about our identity, that we are children of God, that we are sons and daughters of God. But what I find so encouraging is that the Bible doesn't stop there. That just as Jesus spoke who Peter was to him, the Bible actually speaks some things that we are. So I'm gonna read some for you. Ephesians 1 tells you you're chosen. Ephesians 2, you are a masterpiece. Jeremiah 1 says that you were known even before you were born. John chapter eight declares you're free. First Peter two tells you you're healed. Romans eight says we are unashamed. Second Corinthians five, you are Christ's ambassador. First John two, you are strong. Isaiah 43, you are fearless. John 10 says you're secure. Second Corinthians five declares you're a new creation. Romans eight says you're more than a conqueror. Matthew five tells us that you're the light of the world. Ephesians 6 tells us that we are mighty in his power. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we are the church and we exist for the world. And the list goes on and on and on and on. I don't have time to read it all to you today. With all these external voices and pressures that are constantly trying to define us on a daily basis, I believe it can be life-changing to take time and declare these things over our lives. And I don't think it's enough to just read them. I think we actually need to say them out loud. We should read them out loud because the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when we read these out loud, what we're doing is we are actually declaring what God has said about us. And when we do that, we'll find that our hearts begin to change, that what we think begins to change, that what we say, how we talk begins to change, that how we live, our actions begin to shift and change and line more up with who God has said we are than rather than others have said we are. And I think it's about time we take back our image of who God says we are because it is his thoughts, his word, what he has said that matters above all else. And I'm passionate about this because there's been a time in my life where I had to do this, where I had to wake up every day and I had to remind myself, Nat, this is who God says you are. This is how you are to live. This is what you look like. This is who you are in Christ Jesus. If you think that would be helpful for you, we wanna resource you with some daily declarations. You can go to queencitypeople.com info. There's a QR code right there on the screen. You can scan that and you can actually implement this into your daily lives, into your daily rhythm where you do this yourself. The second truth is this, God loves us. And honestly, we could spend an entire sermon series talking about this, but we ain't got that kind of time. So let me sum it up with how God summed it up with one verse. 
John 3, 16, probably one of the most famous verses across the world. says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And I remember as a young boy, my grandmother, she would teach me this verse. And we would sit down together and we would recite it over and over and over. And she would look at me and she would say, grandson, if there's one thing you need to know more than anything else in this world, it is that God loves you. And then she would do something that I've never forgotten to this day. She would make it personal. And she would teach me to recite this verse like this. For God so loved Nat that he gave his only begotten son, that if Nat would believe in him, then he would not perish, but Nat could have eternal life. And it taught me this very important fact that God did not send his son Jesus to die for the crowds or for the masses, but no, he sent his son Jesus to die for the individual. That if you were the only one, he still would have sent his son. Let me read it to you like C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, he did not die for men, but for each man. If each man had been the only man made, he would have done no less. Make no mistake about it, church. God loves us, but he loves you more than you could ever think or imagine. And here's the third lie, or the third truth, excuse me, is that God is pleased with us. What's so important about this truth isn't just that God spoke this over Jesus, but it's when he spoke it over him. Remember, God said this to Jesus before he had done any of his public ministry, anything, in, uh, anything to this point. No miracles had been done. There was no Sermon on the Mount. The calling of the 12 disciples hadn't been there yet. No, he hadn't walked on water, calmed the storm, none of that. This was one of the first things he had done. In fact, the only things we see before this was the lineage of who Jesus was, his birth, and that time he stayed back at the temple to school all the professors, right? That's all we get of Jesus so far. All that to say, Jesus didn't have to earn God's approval. In fact, he worked from God's approval, not for it. And the same is true for you and I. God has given us his approval. And that changes, or let me say it like this, it should change. It can change how we live. We get to live from it and not working for it. And we see that he's given that to us because of our faith in Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse one. To have faith is to be sure of the things we hope for, to be certain of the things we cannot see. For it was by their faith, the people of ancient times won God's approval. So let me show you one example of someone from those ancient times in Romans chapter four. Verse one, it says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about, but that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Verse 23, and when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead. Just as God approved of Abraham because of his faith, he approves of us because of ours in Jesus, his son. I wanna make sure you know, church, that there's no doubt that this is who we are, that this is who we are. Because of Jesus and what he did on the cross, we can be called children of God. Children who have his unconditional acceptance, his unconditional love, and his unconditional approval. This is the identity that he wants us to live freely in. This is the identity 
that will impact every part of the vision that we believe He has for your life, of knowing Him, of finding biblical community, of becoming His disciple and being His church. As I was message prepping this week, started thinking back to my own story and uh, my own journey with identity. And I remembered young Nat, specifically my eighth grade year and all that came with that. I thought back to the hardships and uh, the bullying that I had actually experienced from classmates that year. And I remember how devastating that was for me. It, it, it was really the first time I think, or at least that I remember, experiencing like people not liking me, not because of something I had said or done, but really just because. And for eighth grade Nat, whose appearance was built on what people thought of him, I think that broke something in me. And I unintentionally started believing that third lie we talked about, that I am what people say or think about me. And I would say that that began to birth uncertainties in my life. I started wondering like, you know, if I say this, will I fit in? If I do that, will people like me? Is how I'm designed or created valuable? We could go there forever. And I found myself wondering all these things. And it's, it's, it's as if my identity was set up on the scale of other people's thoughts and their words about me. And if I worked really hard, I could tip that scale in my favor. But there would be these unexpected moments always where it seems like it'd just get thrown the other way for whatever reason. And this would create a lot of anxiousness in my life, especially around uh, what I believed about myself. And this would send me on a journey where I learned to find ways to work for others' approval. And not only that, it also caused me to start hiding the messy parts of my life not give anyone ammunition for what they could say or could think about me. And to only present the honorable things. Live this life with a mask. And it wouldn't be until years later where the work of trying to keep that scale in my favor became too much. And I could no longer keep up. And thankfully, in that low place in my life, I had a biblical community who helped me learn and reshape where my identity is truly found. And I'd love to tell you that I've never had to face those lies again, but I'd be lying. See, I believe Satan wants to attack all of our identities for the rest of our lives. He can never take away how God's created you or the gifts God's given you. But if he can get you to doubt who you are, then he can cause you to live a life trying to earn something you've already been given. But what I've realized is that the longer you live with your identity rooted in the truth of what God says, the easier it becomes to recognize the truth and rebuke the lies. And that is my hope and my prayer for you. If there's anything in your life that we can pray for, please visit queencitypeople.com prayer. For the latest updates on our church, follow us on social media at queencitypeople or visit queencitypeople.com.